Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the Premier of the Northwest Territories. R.J. Simpson was introduced in the legislature after being sworn in last week as the Premier of the Northwest Territories, as you just heard. He's Métis from Hay River and the first person from outside of Yellowknife to lead the territory since 2011. He's promising to work on settling outstanding land claims and prioritize emergency preparedness, which is a big deal in a territory that has been ravaged by fires and floods. The Premier has also been making headlines by asking the federal government to exempt the territory from paying the carbon tax, R.J. Simpson joins us now. Premier, good morning. Good morning. The Northwest Territories has, has, as you well know, seen devastating fires and floods. When you think of what your community has gone through, what needs to change so that the territory is better prepared? Uh, Yes, we have seen uh, devastating fires and floods. Uh, Last year, 2022, my community, uh, Hay River, experienced the biggest natural disaster in in the territory's history up until that time. Um, with, with a flood, you know, a community of 3,500 people, 500 homes damaged or destroyed. And then this year, I, I would personally, along with everyone else in the community, was out of our my home for two months because of the wildfires, which made their way actually into the community within the municipal boundaries, uh, very close to homes and, um, uh, you know, facilities like our, our health center. So, uh, you know, we are experiencing the effects of climate change. And I know all of Canada is. But uh, we're experiencing them uh, even more so because the further north you go, the more you feel it. So what we need to do is uh, just prepare ourselves. And that means looking at how we uh, prepare for fires. So our our fire breaks, um, the kind of work that we do uh, around communities, ensuring that, you know, even individuals know their roles. If we are required to evacuate again, ensuring that the government departments know their roles. You know, we've had a number of evacuations over the past two years. And so we have no excuse not to be prepared. But there are some big infrastructure changes that, that need to happen um, in terms of uh, building berms and things like that. And so it's going to cost some money. And so we're going to need to work with uh, the federal government and our Indigenous government partners to make it happen. What was that experience like for you when you were forced to flee your home? Well, it uh, you know what, I'll say there's a lot of trauma in the community because of this. Um, you know, the first time that uh, we evacuated in 2022, there was no expectation that the flood was going to uh, affect the parts of town that it did. You know, there's always a part of town that traditionally had flooded. Um, that's actually why we built the new part of town because it wasn't supposed to flood. And so when it did, people were in their homes. They were they were laying in bed when the water started coming through their their doors and their windows and and washing away their vehicles. Um, you know, somehow nobody died, although we had many close calls. And then this last year, it was the same thing. We you know, I, I just missed the fire closing the highway. You know, if I had left a few minutes later, I would have been caught in the flames. And many people were. There were uh, maybe a dozen cars uh, just outside of the community charred. And people were, um, you know, rescued from those cars. Some people had to roll down the bank and into the river to avoid uh, being burnt. So, you know, it, it was a traumatic experience. And for many people, there's lasting emotional scars and 
you know, the financial impact as well to many people who uh, who were off work and, and also, couldn't work. And also a real sense that they felt let down by their government and that they felt, they wonder whether they would trust the government with another wildfire season or an evacuation order. You hear that comment, we heard that comment on this program from a number of people who were forced to flee. Do you understand where they're coming from? Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. I mean, it. I think we're still coming to terms with it. it I, I People... It's really hard to wrap your head around being out of your home for two months out of the year. Um, but the fact is that this was, you know, last year, the Great Slave Lake, which is not a small body of water. It's one of the biggest lakes in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's where my community is. That's where Yellowknife is. That's where most of the people in the territory live around that lake. It was the highest it's ever been. And that resulted in the floods. This year, it's the lowest it's ever been. And we experienced a severe drought. And so, um, you know, on the, on the day that we had to evacuate on August 13th, um, it was actually a clear morning. For once, I was able to open the windows because we didn't have that thick um, wildfire smoke that we've been living with all summer. But the wind picked up and it picked up quite a bit. And I thought, I need to pack a bag. Um, and so, because I knew how dry it was out there, how bad the conditions were. And despite the fact that we have some experience fighting fires in the territory, it was the conditions were unlike anything anyone has ever seen. So I, I understand that, um, you know, People felt like they, they were let down, but uh, I'm not sure if there was any way to stop you know, the, the majority of the devastation that happened. That said, the public does need to, we do need some closure on this. Mm. And so we are, as a government, undertaking uh, a review. It's going to be an independent third-party review. We do that after every forest fire season, but this one is going to be enhanced because we need to show the public that we're taking this seriously. I want to be able to present them with a product saying, this is a, a record of what happened. Um, the good and the bad, and this is what we're going to do to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Your predecessor was on this program over the summer in some of the worst of the fire season, and she, I think it's fair to say, blasted the federal government for failing to invest in proper infrastructure. She compared the Northwest Territories to a third world country. Is she wrong? Well, the Northwest Territories, it's interesting. Um, You know, we're not a province, and for a long time, the federal government uh, was was essentially the government here in many respects. And so they have a lot of money and they built a lot of infrastructure here. And then we they began devolving authority to the Northwest Territories. And as they did that, um, you know, we became responsible for replacing a lot of this infrastructure and building new infrastructure. But the fact is we don't have pockets as deep as the federal government. And so we have a huge infrastructure deficit here in Canada. We, you know, I, I always think in Southern Canada, the federal government helped build the, the highways and the railroads from east to west, and that helped southern Canada develop. Now there's uh, huge populations, there's industries. We, we never had the benefit of that. And so we are still developing relative to the rest of Canada. There's you, no doubt about that. Do you think, I mean, when you take a look at her language, do you think that the territories are a third world country in a first world country in some ways. That's what she was saying, that there's a disparity, and you've hinted at this, but there's a disparity in terms of how the North is treated in this country. Yeah, and I guess I just, uh, I'm not a fan of the term third world country, but uh, I, I can see why people would say that. It does feel like that when you go into communities and you see the infrastructure we have, it doesn't feel like you're in Canada. What do those who govern from the South not understand about the North? Um, you know, it's, I, I don't think people can even grasp the size of the territory. Um, you know, we bring so sometimes federal ministers up here and, you know, they'll come to the capital to Yellowknife and it's, it's a modern city. We have all the amenities here, but once you get outside of there, 
that's not the case. We're, we're 1.3 million square kilometers, and we have 33 communities spread out over that, that distance. Not everyone, most people are not connected by all-season roads, or most communities. Uh, we have to rely on barging and, and winter roads, um, air, air travel. And when you have 33 communities, that means you have um, you know, 33 water treatment plants and 33, uh, you know, everything. Whereas a city in the south of 45,000 people like we are here in the territory, they don't need all of that infrastructure. And so I don't think people grasp that to, to operate this territory, the costs are so extremely high. The costs of getting goods up are so high. What you, in, in the face of that, what are you going to be asking for from the federal government in terms of infrastructure investments that would make a meaningful difference to people in the territory? Well, here in the Northwest Territories, we have a we don't have a, a party system. We have a what we call consensus government, and so we're all elected as independent members, and then we come together, elect our our cabinet and, and premier, and together as a, an assembly, all nineteen MLAs, we develop our priorities. And so we are we are in the midst of that priority setting, and that's going to help determine what we we ask the government for. But there's no doubt that we are going to need support to ensure that. We're prepared for the next uh, emergency because the next climate-driven emergency, whether it's floods or fires, because they will happen. It is, you know, next year, it's going to be bad as well. Um, we also need to connect communities. So the Mackenzie Valley Highway is a project that's been on the books for, for many years. And uh, every year the cost goes up and the difficulty to build goes up. So we're definitely going to need support on that. We're not connected to the southern power grid. Mm. Um, and so we need to... Uh, shore up our our electrical grid in the territory here perhaps connect to the southern grid so there's a lot on the table part of that perhaps in terms of not understanding the territory and the, the scope of the territory might feed into the comments that you made when you asked for a full exemption to the carbon tax why should the northwest territories be exempt from this program well, I'll say this, this is, I'm not the first person to ask for this. Ever since day one of the carbon tax and before the carbon tax was implemented, that has been the position of the government of the Northwest Territories because you can't get blood from a stone. If high costs were what, um, you know, would drive us to adopt green energy and, and uh, use green energy sources and green technology, we would have been the first ones in Canada to do it. The fact is the technology that's available doesn't work for us here in the territory. And um, what, do you, what do you mean the technology that's available? Doesn't well, you know, you. Heat, heat pumps is, is something that we always hear about. And, uh, you know, there's limits in the, the current technology. I'm sure it'll get there, but the current technology, they say it's, it's good up until, you know, minus 25. And then after that, it's, it's not quite as efficient. I mean, th we're in the Northwest Territories. Minus 25 is nothing. And we have that for, on, it feels like half the year. It's, it's, it's that cold. So it's just not technology that works in many communities. The sun is down for months. You know, we have 24-hour darkness, and so solar isn't an option. It's difficult to run uh, wind turbines up here. So, uh, you know, we, we face a lot of those kind of challenges, and we can't just make that transition to green energy alone. And I would be happy to, work, to make that transition, but we need to do it in partnership with the federal government because we need that support. You said that the idea of the carbon tax, maybe it's a good idea for some jurisdictions. It just, just doesn't work for us. The federal government has said, and the resource minister in particular, has said there will be no more carve-outs. So is that that, or are you going to continue to press the case? 
Well, we're going to have to continue to press the case. There's no doubt about this. Um, you know, we've been doing it since the inception of the carbon tax, and we'll continue to do it. This isn't a, through, this through, isn't a new through, position for through, us. Through what means? We've seen other uh, provinces uh, where the, the government has said we're not going to be collecting, for example, revenues on specific things that the carbon tax is applied to. You've seen court challenges as well. How far would you go on this? Well, we you know we want to maintain a good relationship with the federal government. There's, uh, you know, we have a very close relationship. We're very reliant on them. We're not like the, the provinces who have the ability to raise uh, significant revenues um, through taxes of, of the large populations and industry. So we want to maintain a good relationship. That's really the, you know, going to be the cornerstone of my government is, is relationship building and working together. So we're going to have to work with the feds and educate the feds. I'm not going to try and go outside of the law and, and stop collecting uh, revenues or anything like that. But certainly we'll be, continue to put the political pressure on them. The point of the carbon tax is, is to encourage people to transition away from oil and gas, which is causing the emissions that are linked to the fires that we talked about, that devastated part of the Northwest Territories. How do you square that in your mind? Yeah, I mean, that's not lost on, on anyone. The fact is that we're trying to address an issue that is happening now. So we are, when your house is burning, you want to put put out the fire, right? So when we talk about what started the fire, you know, that, that's important as well, but we are feeling the effects. And so we're putting our energy into the effects of climate change that frankly is not, we are not the main contributors here in the territory to climate change. We're the ones experiencing it though. Uh, the, the contributors are, you know, if we're talking about Canada, it's Southern Canada, it's the other parts of the, of the country. We want to do our part, but we are being impacted disproportionate to the rest of the country and especially disproportionate to our emissions. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We have seen this week uh, at the UN Climate Conference in Dubai, countries, including this country, agreeing to transition away from fossil fuels. Given what you said um, in terms of the technology and, and what doesn't work in the territory, do you think it's possible to live in the Northwest Territories without using oil and gas for home heating and for transportation? Uh, you know, people have been living here since time immemorial, so it, it is possible, but... Um, is it possible given, now to live? Given the technology, I mean, I would say no. I mean, we have many communities that are, most communities are um, powered by diesel-generated power plants. You know, everything is is trucked into communities. People have to fly out of their communities if there's no roads. Uh, we use, um, you know, barges, uh, fossil fuel-powered barges to, to transport goods. So while we do have a significant hydro potential, and we do have a number of the largest communities on hydropower, uh, it is not possible right now for us to to make that transition. We would love to get there. Um, I don't think there's any disagreement about that across the territory, but the the amount of investment it would take is well beyond our our means. What does that mean then? If if there's a managed transition away from oil and gas, but you say that that's not possible in the community. I mean, we've seen in other communities in the face of climate change, things like managed retreat, where it's a really difficult thing, but people have conversations about, can we continue to live in this area because of the impacts of climate change and the changes that we'll have to make? 
is it, yeah, well, what, what do you do about that? Can like, are those conversations that you need to start to have with, with communities in the territory? So in the Northwest Territories, most of our communities are Indigenous communities. The population is, you know, 95, 100% Indigenous in many communities. And we are no longer in the business of telling an Indigenous community that they have to move. So I'm not going to attempt to, you know, tell the people who've been living in, a, in an area for thousands of years that they now have to move somewhere else, move to a city. So we need to figure out how we can continue to live um, you know, on the lands that, have, we've, that people have traditionally occupied, but in a sustainable way. And so we want to do that, um, but it's tough. Let me just ask you, I know we're almost out of time. Let me ask you about those lands. You've said that a key priority for you is settling Indigenous land claims. And you told CBC North there's a need to, in your words, move off some traditional positions. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, I've, I've been a you know, an MLA for eight years and a cabinet minister now for four years. And now I'm, I'm in as premier in my third term. And uh, I've met with the Indigenous governments many times. Um, I've seen, um, you know, I've heard from the, the officials of our government. And it, it seems to me that some of the positions that, that we have been holding on to as a government um, are, are, it's time to change those. And I don't think that uh, what is, I don't think to, we need to be flexible. We need to be reasonable. And I think that when I look to the future of the territory, the the territory in 50 years is going to be a, uh, a system of governance like you know unique in Canada. We're going to have a number of indigenous uh, governments that are are self governing. Uh, we're going to have the government of the Northwest Territories playing a role. And so, how do we move towards that future state? We have to be willing to to give up things that maybe the government traditionally wanted to hold on to. What do you think? You, what not, do you think you need to let go of? Um, well, you know, we, we still have to get uh, into the specific. You have uh, you have some se- you have but... some sense, though. Having said this, I mean, give us a, a sense as to what you think. W- w- where's the give in that? Well, if if we're working with uh, government or indigenous governments who want to become self-governing, that means they they're going to have the ability to take over authority on whatever they want. And so, working towards that, we have to be willing to look at every single thing on the table in terms of services that would be provided otherwise by the territorial government? In terms of services, uh, land management, um, everything. Policing. Oh, yeah, yeah, everything mm. like that. I mean, it's, when we're talking about self-government, it, it's everything. It's, it's self-determination is, is, you know, the ability to, to uh, govern yourself in the way you want without, um, you know, the colonial government telling you what to do. That's a big conversation. Do you think people in the community in the territory are ready for that? Oh yeah, We're, people are chomping at the bit. I mean, this is this is the uh, the discussion we've been having in the territory. If you look at a map of Canada and you look um, and uh, the areas that are either settled claims or under negotiations are highlighted, the entire territory is covered. Um, you know, throughout Canada, there's a few little dots here and there, but. That's the kind of territory that we are. This is an indigenous territory, and um, we're moving towards that direction. To settle those claims, um, what would that mean? For the territory as a whole, I mean, part of this is 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 a philosophical settlement, but there's there's more than that as well. What would it mean if you were able to answer some of those big questions? Well, when you settle a land claim and you start implementing a self government, the one thing that happens is a lot of money starts flowing into the communities um, from the federal government, and I, I've seen the capacity that can be built in the small communities outside of the the larger centers, and that's where we need a, a lot of the uh, the resources to go and, and a lot of the um, um, the funding to go, and it also 
creates assurances around land. Right now, when, when land is being negotiated, it's, it makes it more difficult for investors to look at that land and think, yes, I want to, to put my money towards that because there's no assurances of what the future holds. So once we have uh, settled claims, there's uh, people are, know what the land regime is and is going to be. I think that uh, we're going to see uh, you know, a lot of prosperity in the Northwest Territories. That's a really optimistic vision for a community that's been through an awful lot. I mean, this year has been tough with the fires and, and, and more than that. Um, but that's what the way that you're painting that really has optimism at its core. Yeah, well, you know what? Life in the North is tough. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. This is a, a harsh environment. Um, you know, the people who have lived here have, have uh, always had to work for, for what they had. But, uh, you know, we've been here. We're going to continue to be here. And I always say the Northwest Territories is the land of opportunity. I'm really glad to talk to you, Premier, and I hope we have the chance to talk again, hopefully face-to-face in the community. In the meantime, thank you very much for this. No, I look forward to speaking again. Thank you. R.J. Simpson is the Premier of the Northwest Territories. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.